Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African-American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades, from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. that 
our communities are changing, the diversity of our communities are changing, and the impact of social and economic policies are certainly making those changes impactful uh, on people of color. And as we discussed in your broadcast, we're also talking about what's at stake for us uh, across the nation, not just uh, America, but America as a whole. And before we get deep into the, the special live broadcast that we're doing,
is a construction, he's a business owner, construction developer, a two-term first African-American mayor of Miramar, Florida, and the 2020 presidential candidate, uh, Mayor Wayne Metham, who's on his way from the airport right now. But first, let us welcome uh, onto the show for the first time, and I'm so grateful to have you tonight, uh, Andy Shabal. Andy, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. If you want to get joined in the conversation, of course, we're broadcasting live at the bus boards and ports on 14th Street. You can certainly stop by, or you can give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. Andy, let me start with you because um, I want to, again, thank you for allowing us to be here. Uh, I know that uh, we reached out to you uh, last week and said, hey, you know, the mayor's coming back in town. We want to be able to talk to him. We had a meeting with him over at your K Street location. I had a good meeting with him. Uh, we were looking for you. You were up on the computer in the back, but you had left out before we got a chance to speak to you and introduce him to you. So I'm glad he's going to be here to introduce himself and to talk um, about what his platform is. But I want to talk to you, and I, I really wanted to do this here because of what you have embodied in the business culture, as well as what you've done uh, throughout D.C. As I said in my introduction, you're an immigrant. You've come, you came over here in the 60s. Uh, you went to Howard for a medical school, which I did not know about. Uh, and uh, very short <laughs> But you did some work in that field in this area, but then you became an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, and you invested in the community. And from all that I've seen and all that uh, I've, I've been able to read and just my personal experience and coming to us boys and forwards, watching you on the campaign trail when you were running from there, you invested in the areas that were heavily African-American at the time. And, and I'm sure you saw the vision of what was going to come. And so you got in early as most do when you got in. But, but your commitment to that community or to our community has been unique. Talk to me about what it means as an immigrant and a business owner and how important immigration is to this country and our GDP. And whether or not you see the policies that Donald Trump is his administration have uh, been advocating as it relates to immigration are good or bad for our country. Yeah, that's a lot of questions all at once. Two main ones, you know, yeah. as, as an immigrant and then how those policies are impacting us. As an immigrant, we are clearly that's what this country is built on. Uh, some came by choice, some not so much by choice. Exactly. Uh, this is a, uh, a country that has, was built on the back of slaves. It uh, was uh, a country that brought a lot of people from all over the world. The best and the brightest for the freedoms and for the values of the country. That's why I'm family of them. We moved here with the intention of just being here for a couple of years of exchange. Uh, where I came from, where my family found the means to stay here. They wanted to work each uh, away from the violence and the um, oppression that was happening back in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And so we stayed here. You know, we've been here ever since. We grew when we first decided to stay here, it was going to be every year, it was going to be, we go back next year, we go back next year, we go back next year. But it never, you know, it never happened. We ended right. up being here, raising families here coming um, very much part of this uh, culture and this community. So I always feel like as an immigrant, you might come an American by choice, which makes me actually slightly more thoughtful about what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. I wasn't just born into it. I had to make a choice. That choice was based on the values and the um, opportunities that this country stands for. So 
when I hear the disparaging comments made about immigrants, it's really quite upsetting, frankly, because extremely short-sighted. And I think it's only there for fear mongering to create divisions between us. Um, unfortunately, um, that's what happens sometimes. But um, I'm hopeful that people will see through this charade and be able to come out on the side stronger than we have for that. Right. And so when you when you um, see it, because, I mean, you, you really hit it. It, it, it certainly comes off, and it certainly seems to be intended to be a racial uh, separator, racial divider, to really pit cultures and, 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 and individuals against one another in order to reach a political end as opposed to a, a, a national or, or, or uh, inclusive end. And, and how do you feel or how do you see that that's going to play out? Because as it is now, we're learning more and more each day from child separation to other things going on, that this is really a, a, a real you know, desire for them to really divide this country. I think, you know, the whole issue of immigration has always been a, uh, at least in the past few decades, it's been a, um, a serious area that we as a country and certainly our Congress has not taken it off. It's an issue that needs to be taken needs to be addressed. And I think, I'm hoping that, you know, whenever something as horrible as what's happening today, where people are separated, families being separated, children that the youngest two years old being taken away from their parents, I'm hoping that that will be an overreach that will get us to really focus more and more on immigration. I mean, we, we're talking about this a lot lately. I mean, even under the Obama administration, uh, there was a lot of uh, deportations. Yeah, uh, there was. And things that were taking place that right. really should not take place in right. this country. When people are trying to go through the hell they have to go through to get here, there's a reason for that. No one wants to leave their homeland. No one wants to come and live in a different culture, learn a different language, come right. with themselves and their families, right. walk across, you know, deserts and forests and, and swim across rivers and risk life and, and liberty and everything else because it's just fun. They do it because they absolutely have no other choice. And when we turn them back, we are basically turning our back on humanity. We've given up, and I refuse to be in that kind of um, uh, space. And I'm always outspoken about the issue of immigrants. Uh, always uh, stand in solidarity with the immigrants that have made this country what it is today. And uh, myself and the mayor here, being two of those people, um, we're proud to be American, uh, and we uh, continue to make sure that. This country lives up to what's possible. You know, this is, we're in a room called the Langston Hughes Room. Mm -hmm. You know, I right. could all be taking a little more time with this. We're in a, a room called the Langston Hughes Room. Langston Hughes was a great African American poet, lived here in the early part of the 20th century. And one of the inspirations behind this place is a poem called Let America Be America Again. Because I really was distraught after what happened. 9-11 and the uh, isolation that I felt as an immigrant, as a Muslim, as a proud person living in this country. And I wanted to believe that people can rise above that and not demonize one another for the sake of whatever uh, the 
quick, expedient um, way to go about right. you know, resolving right. this very serious issue. And my students wrote this poem about America Be American again because it spoke about the possibilities of what America has to offer. He wrote this poem in the 1930s as a black man living in the 1930s under the worst cases of Jim Crow, the worst conditions of Jim Crow. It really spoke to me in a very serious way, thinking, how could somebody be so hopeful about America? Black men living in the 1930s. An America that was very hostile Continue to add fuel uh, to that fire. 
Um, you know, being the son of immigrants, you know, I am not only appreciative of my parents' journey to this country, uh, who in a similar vein to Lane Hughes during Jim Crow uh, was thinking about the potential and of this nation. My father was a contract sugarcane mm-hmm. He cut sugarcane for 75 cents per roll of sugarcane. And this was in the mid to late 60s. Yeah. And the height of Jim Crow, the height of the civil rights battle. Right. And here you have a man from a foreign country looking at the potential and promise of America during perhaps one of the um, hardest times. Hardest times. Right. Right. And during this right. time domestically in this country right. where you had African Americans fighting for civil rights. Right. right. You know, it made the difference. And he saw, and he saw the potential while working under very for an opportunity to bring his family to this country. So when I think about that, you know, and then I get a chance to share his story to show that the promise of this nation is always going to be greater than the challenges that we face. Right. It's going to take good people who are going to stand up and fight. So as a candidate for the President of the United States, I've never shied away from talking about the challenges and the problems we have from a race perspective as well as from the immigration because what I do know is that all this talk about selective immigration, priority, merit-based inclusion in terms of who will be in the front of the line, who can come into this country. I can tell you this right now. If merit-based, race, uh, merit-based immigration right. was in place when my parents came to this country, they would have been at the bottom or the back of the line. Right. But yet, they were hard-working Americans that helped build the agriculture. My mother was a cook who went in the and don't and don't you think it's a bit hypocritical for them to talk about that when especially this uh, Donald Trump uses an exemption for Mar a Lago to be able to hire his immigrants and in those cases maybe undocumented immigrants because we've seen the reports that they're undocumented but he uses an exemption for him to be able to keep his immigrants to stay there and work his his uh, um, resort but they want to. Uh, you know, uh, demonize and, and uh, stop others from being able to use the same policy and process. It, it's a bit hypocritical to me to be able to do that. It's hypocrisy at its highest level. Right. Um, if this country was serious about illegal immigration, uh, we would not benefit from the contributions of their labor in the country. We would have some specific and harshest corporate penalties exactly. and that highest undocumented individuals, but we don't because we know that the value and the contribution of the labor of undocumented individuals is too great to cause such a penalty. But yet, we want to block a pathway to citizenship to almost 12 million individuals who are out of status, you know, in this country. They're paying their taxes for the overwhelming great majority of them are law-abiding individuals outside of their, their, their immigration status. Right. just shows the hypocrisy, you know, in this whole system. It shows that the system is broken, and it shows that it's up for the highest bidder, especially in the case of our president, that who feels that he's above the law or wants to apply the law on everyone else. Everyone else. When it's to their advantage. It is. It, I, it, and it gets me riled up, so <laughs> it gets me riled But let me switch back to you, Andy, and, and take it from that status of Looking at immigration and looking at the 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 uh, dialogue, if you will, of them of what people say is that well, when immigrants come to town, they lower our wages, they make it harder for anyone else to work. When 
necessarily see that personally, but talk to us about your campaign. When you were running for mayor, you talked about you know minimum wage, and at that point in time, D.C. was going through the, the uh, raising of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. We had a huge thing with Walmart and everything was going on. But you had made note that at that time you were already paying above the minimum wage and looking to make, you know, a livable, you know, your employees have a livable wage. Talk to me about how you're operating that and how it impacts your business structure. And is it costing you more to, you know, pay more to your employees to make sure that they're sustained and have a livable wage and how that impacts your business? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, corporate social responsibility is becoming uh, the thing now. You know, uh, we were always involved in that process for many, many uh, years before it became uh, cool to be able to talk about it. Right. Uh, but obviously, you know, the, the uh, move to, uh, to the $15 minimum wage had been uh, on ongoing at the time when I ran for office. And I, of course, you know, was able to, to take that on as a part of my platform. Uh, those types of issues, any issue that really brings people into a, a better situation is going to be an issue that we all should embrace. Um, the D.C. in particular is, uh, has one of the largest uh, wealth disparities in the entire country. Uh, the Gini coefficient, which is usually a measure of, uh, of wealth inequality, according to the Economic Policy Institute, has D.C. as the highest in the entire nation. Uh, and that is problematic. Uh, that is not sustainable. Right. Uh, a lot of times, those types of things are visible, and people don't necessarily see them. You know, we talk about poverty in this country. Uh, I think the poverty rate is supposed to be twenty-four thousand dollars for a family of four. Right. I don't know how many families of four can live for twenty-four thousand dollars. I don't know if families of one can live on twenty-four thousand. You know, the the uh, policy study has up that to at least double that, saying fifty-five thousand for a family right. of four would be below. Um, a sustainable yeah. you know, lifestyle for family four. And with that with that in mind, still those folks are living, you know, one paycheck away from being on the street. Oftentimes we've heard the, the story of four hundred dollar medical bill they can't pay. Correct. Uh, and you can even take it more granular and say that if somebody that is making that kind of money has to support a family, uh, if they got a ticket uh, a parking ticket, which now has become $100 uh, right. for parking. Right. Uh, I don't know what it is in Vermont, but it's $100 here in D.C. And so in many instances, that parking ticket, they're not going to be able to pay. It's going to double. And once it doubles, they're going to come after their car, and they're going to count the car. And now that person cannot get to his work or her work. Right. And therefore, it becomes this non-ending cycle of, of uh, just not being able to ever catch up. So exactly. those issues, I think, are really important. And I think it's also important for us to recognize that when people do better, they're able to spend more and be able to and you, that money and, and they feel better and comfortable contributing to things that they need to do. It, it, it just gives you that, that self-esteem. It gives you that uplifting feeling. Now you're able to spend. You're able to go out and spend. But you're also changing your mentality at home because now you're not stressing. So if you do have kids, you know, you're, you're treating them better. You know, if you're, you're married, you have a spouse, you're treating them better. You're doing all these things that are allowing you to help relieve your stress at home 
because you're able to get out and do some more things. So talk to me about your education plan, Mayor, um, because I'm, I see the, 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 the wages and education, and I see how you, you uh, implemented or you're proposing to eliminate the, the student loan debt uh, much more than what Elizabeth Warren is doing. She's talking about $50,000, and from all accounts, everyone's saying that that's not going to eliminate anything. It's a good start, but it's not going to eliminate anything, and you're talking more about elimination. Talk to us about that, because that, that ties into being able to earn a wage and be able to have that, but if, you have, if you're saddled with that debt, that's the first thing you graduate with. Now you're stressing about that debt. You're trying to now get a job, and if you're not able to get the job, you're, you're in the same situation that, that Andy's talking about. Talk about your, your education plan and that elimination of debt and how that contributes to society. Exactly. You know, I'm the first presidential candidate to propose uh, the complete and total elimination of the $1.5 trillion outstanding student loan debt. And as of today, it's increased to $1.6 trillion. Uh, other candidates have begun to introduce their own plans, but I'm proud to be a leader in that. Their plans are not in the direction. Um, you know, we look at some of the economic um, impacts of this debt. 44 million Americans that uh, are in dream debt, on average, about 400 bucks per month um, in student loan debt premium payments, uh, with an average down to about $30,000, which I think is low, because I just spoke to some students at USC who's paying per year when you put that into context what does that mean to not just the graduate that's graduating with your debt and are the parents with debt it means that one they probably are going to be delayed to find that first home they're delaying starting families when you think about them getting married and now chances are both spouses also have debt I spoke to one couple of people today. Yeah. They're paying almost $2,000 a month. And that's something that I didn't really think about because you look at it, yeah, when you get married, your husband has college debt, your wife has college debt, now you're sitting there trying to pay both that off, and you're living paycheck to paycheck if, if you know, you have the job with both, you know, both spouses have, you know, income. That's, that's difficult. And that's a systemic problem because who typically has to take out good home debt? Working class Americans, people of color, and of the 44 million, almost 60% are women that have to take on this debt. So you already have a class of individuals who already have a card of debt stacked against them who are now starting off their professional life, mortgaging on getting higher education, which society says, what, go to school, get good grades. Go to college so you can get a high-paying job, right? Right. But yet, who has to take on this burden? Those individuals. Mm -hmm. Yet, corporations get to benefit from a more educated and qualified workforce, but don't have any skin in the game. That's why I'm proposing that not interested in moving forward, how we can help ensure that we have funding grants, as well as uh, making tuition free higher education, is to have corporations who are benefiting. Actually, have more I'm just a slight payroll similar to how corporations pay for Social Security and Medicare, where then now this higher education fund goes to the federal government that now can be awarded to public institutions or HBCUs and other institutions of higher education that are showing that one, that they are holding down their costs right. and providing. 
who needed additional education support because financial aid is dwindling away and the federal government is not providing these opportunities. And it's important that we do that. We talked about that um, $15 minimum wage. Uh, you know, I'm in support um, of that. Uh, however, I also think, though, that we need to look at each metropolitan area. Um, and I would support perhaps pushing more of a living wage. Because I tell you right now, in some marketplaces, like right here in D.C., $15 an hour is not enough. No, it's not. And especially when it's, they want to take, you know, five years to implement it. Exactly. You know, I mean, if it was 15 today, maybe. But you're going to take five years to implement it. Costs are going up every, every day, every year. So now you're looking at what you would need is $25 an hour compared to 15 so the thing is that, you know, we have to have consciousness in this country where we realize that we're all in the same boat. It's not about taking something from one to give to the other. It's about us recognizing that we are better as a country when we all have But, but let's talk about that, Andy, even, even that, because there's always that thing that says, well, you know, everyone just wants the handout. They just want to get the handout and do this. And, and if you give tuition free, that's a handout. If you... If you try to, you know, eliminate dates, that, that's a handout. Wall Street got a handout. The farmers get handouts every year. And we don't look at that as being welfare or subsidized or anything else of that nature. We always get this talk of, well, let the marketplace do it. You know, let the marketplace, you know, um, um, uh, manage itself. And, you know, if you can't sell your product, then, oh, well, change your market plan. But then... We're paying farmers millions of dollars. We're paying oil companies billions of dollars. And we bought out Wall Street for billions of dollars. Each one of them got handouts. But the people who are supporting those industries, they're cutting SNAP. They're cutting WIC. They're cutting healthcare medicine. They're cutting everything that would be sustainable for the people in order to even contribute to those corporations or industries to keep those industries viable. I mean, how do we justify that? Well, you said that it's not welfare, but it is welfare. It is welfare. It's corporate welfare. Exactly. That's, that's, but that's, they don't want to call it that. That's the problem. It is corporate welfare by, by every measurable imagination. And, and it's also far more than we, will, we are willing to spend for, you know, basic sustenance for people, obviously. Exactly. Uh, and I think, I think part of the issue that we have here is that we are, we have a split personality in this country. Tell we, me about we, it. <laughs> we, want to have, we want to have a free market, you know, capitalist society, everybody talks about that. And then we want to have everything else to, to sort of go along with that. It doesn't work that way. It really doesn't work that way. I think uh, the president always has a, has a session with Norwegians, you know.
this is a community and we all have to take care of each other and it's not each man fence for themselves. So there's this sort of strangeness about how we perceive this country to be. It's, it's very individualistic and yet there's a lot of downside to that mm -hmm. that we don't take into account. Right. And it creates all kinds of right. issues for people. Once they find themselves that really they're not an island by themselves, right. they realize that being alone is not really idea but sometimes you need to have a community to make things work right so I I love what you're saying there about the idea of uh, having Technology, advancement in technology, 
and uh, artificial intelligence is really driving the economy right now. You know, this nation was built on agriculture until the Industrial Revolution. Now, the Industrial Revolution has now gone through globalization. We all know that every country does not play a lot labor law. So, therefore, other countries are now more competitive than us to be able to provide the same manufacturing opportunities and capabilities. Uh, more, more cheaper than we are because they don't have the same, they don't play by the same rules. And now we have this information age, this technology age, this gig economy that we're in. It is an untapped area. My plan will be investing in not only teaching individuals on how to be entrepreneurs, but how to get certified and be coding to um, augmentation, automation, artificial intelligence, all these new and emerging technologies that are basically taking over not only our economy, the economy across this globe. The high paying job, um, there's high demand, there's right. high wage. We wouldn't even be talking about a living wage if we get our people right. and train our people right. to be able to not only take advantage as new producers and innovators in the state, creating businesses, but also to be able to be if they want to be a regular worker. But I think in closing that I think that every high school student should be taught on how to be an entrepreneur, how to set up a business, how to manage that business. Whether they go off and start their own business or not, it really doesn't matter because I tell you one, based on the economy right now, at some point, there will be some form of displacement, either by choice or involuntary. Right. And they should be able to take their skills and their experience that they've gained over the years of working and be able to monetize it. And by equipping our young people as well as our seasoned people, Whenever they are displayed, and they'll have the ability to be able to monetize their skills and their talent. Let me go to the call. We have a caller that's coming in. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Give us your name and uh, what's your question? Caller. Yeah, I see him on there. Okay, we'll we'll come back to you. So, uh, Andy, with what the mayor is talking about it and how to create or build that global economy and and build that technology. I mean, your your industry doesn't require you know everyone to have a degree and things of that nature. So you've been able to help and you've been able to flourish. And I've always asked that question that the mayor put out there is like, why aren't corporations investing more? I know they used to say, well, we'll you know help you or pay back help you go to school. So we may help, you know, with classes here, but they had to be specifically towards whatever industry you're in. But you've been able to succeed and open up seven restaurants with, you know, labor, work labor. They didn't have degrees and things of that nature. Talk to us about that and how valuable that is because, you know, my dad used to always say, you know, I can teach you how to do what I need you to do because every job you go to is going to train you anyway. So whether I have the degree or not, you're going to train me to do the job. You know, how does that impact your industry and how can that impact America? Well, the hospitality industry is really, uh, has very few barriers for people to get in. It's a great way for people to get started and really build a career. Uh, we don't ask people their educational background when they find for our jobs. Unless they're doing something really specific like accounting or something like that. Amazing. Uh, but we don't ask anything uh, as far as what is their um, with, with, with their degree. We also were one of the first uh, uh, restaurants here in the city 
That is the only reason why any person can be treated the way that they're treated. Right. Especially when you look at me. I mean, when you look at what's happening to me, you know, just another yeah. example. Day in and day out, there are law enforcement practices and actions. To think about those that aren't captured on camera. And, 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 and that's true. Those are the unknowns right. that's hard right. to prove. Even when we have it on camera. Right. They still get acquitted. They still get acquitted. Okay, so that, that, that's the environment um, that we're in. But we really have to have some very strict and harsh penalties for the few bad law enforcement officers that commit these acts. Um, you know, and, and we cannot be afraid to talk about these issues. You know, when I was first elected in my city as a city commissioner, one of the first things I had, I had a press conference, it was right after the and I got phone calls asking, well, what if something like this happened in Miramar? Then I started looking at our police department. You know, Miramar is very diverse, but we had less than 20% black officers on our police. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your African-American population is over 40%. I think we have to change this. I'm not saying we have to have a specific number of black or Hispanic officers, but what I do want to see is that our police force to reflect the demographic of our community. Right. So that when incidents happen in the community, you have someone from each respective community that has a sense of cultural sensitivity and awareness. You know, if you take a black officer that goes into a predominantly black neighborhood, he used to be one of those little boys running around in the community, right. you know, with mischief or, or just doing things that kids do. And won't we'll see that as violence. And won't we'll see him as a criminal. And can pull him or that young lady to the side and say, listen, you cannot do this. You have to. And can give them a second chance. Opposed to coming out of a gun, drawing, just coming out of a car, drawing a weapon. Exactly. Right? Less than, less than two seconds shooting and killing exactly. a 12-year-old. Exactly. Right. So as president, as president, I don't have a justice department that will, for one, reinstate consent decrees and issue more that needs to be issued out there because you have to hold law enforcement accountable. And don't get me wrong, you have, there are so many more good police officers out there than they are bad. But there are some bad apples out there. And we cannot be afraid to do something about those bad apples. And I think so that's, go ahead, Andy. And there's been a concerted effort to militarize policing. Right, right. I mean, you see it in what they wear, you see it in the, they have tanks. Of the weapon they carry. They have tanks right. that roll down the middle of local Main Street. Right, right. All right. So, and a lot of it, a lot of it, I have to add, has been training that's been done in areas of the countries that really don't respect necessarily uh, certain guidelines that we like to live by in this country. For or example, the diversity of the community. A lot of our police forces are being trained, uh, being trained in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been trained in Israel because Israel is highlighted as one of the safest places to be. Well, one of the reasons why it appears that way is because they profile everyone. If you're Arab and if you're Muslim, you walk on a different street. If right. you're Arab and you're Muslim, you have to live in a certain part of town. Right. And if that's the way we want to live in this country, then we're doing the right thing. But I don't think this country would build on those foundations. And I really don't want us to go down that road. Or the perception that somehow by doing this is going to make us safer. Because it may make us safer in a very short period of time, but it's really endangering us as a country and losing our, 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 
very foundation that we like to abide by. It's going to create an uprising that certainly I don't know that uh, we're ready for. It won't be just a, a riot in one part of town. It's going to be a riot throughout the whole city. Um, and it, it's just one of those things that you, you look at. When you look at um, our judges, Mayor, um, because as president, you will get the benefit, the pleasure of being able to appoint federal judges. I'm looking at 107 judges that have been appointed, many of which, many of which have never been in a courtroom to even try a case. Others have, no, I mean, they don't even know the legal procedures of what they're supposed to be doing. And they're now in lifetime appointments um, that are going to be detrimental to, especially the black and brown population. But when you think about that and you look at it, are, are, what is going to be your plan in terms of judgeships? And then secondly, would you do something like Trump did and, and have a list of judges that you're going to bring out and say, these are the type of judges I'm going to appoint. I think that it's clear that um, that the president would have a standard of what a federal appointment should look like. You know, a judge that will um, justly um, interpret the law, uh, not legislate the law, uh, one that has a judicial um, record of fairness. Um, that uh, recognizes that when precedent is set, um, it's not their job to overturn precedent, um, like many of these appointments. The sad thing about what's scary about current situation with the current administration is we talk about over 100 plus federal appointments. Many of them right. are young. Yeah, 35. So 40. the question is will number 46 actually have many appointments to make? Yeah. You know, that, 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 that's a scary thing about that. And we haven't even talked about it. Right. You know, so uh, they've already sat in court. There's been a lot of questions going about, well, as president, will you sat in court? Will you increase the, the number of um, Supreme Court justices? But that game has already been paid when they stole President Barack Obama's appointment. Exactly. They did not allow him to even get here. Exactly. To be able to, uh, be, to, be, uh, to be appointed. But that just goes to show how the elections have consequences. You know, Quite so, uh, but it's important. But as president, I would look for justices that would be fair, uh, that have cultural sense. And we're not look to go back the hands of time in this country, but to recognize where we are as a nation and where we are moving forward mm -hmm. while respecting President Trump. I want to ask uh, anyone in the audience if they have any questions because I, I neglected to do that earlier. I know a few people would have texted me saying they had some questions. Does anybody have any questions that you want to ask the mayor? Uh, sure, yes. So, opportunities. Um, oh, Hi, Andora Govan, Director of International Business So, Opportunity Zone is the latest sort of buzzword fashion census right now. It's almost like a Black Friday sale, but the hood is on sale predominantly. Um, so, where do you think is your area in an Opportunity Zone and what's your opinion on how we can best? when in that 10 years from now, look back and say, I used to live there. That big old condo complex was the home I grew up Yeah. Well, thanks for your question. Um, first of all, the uh, opportunity zones, it depends on what side of the spectrum you're on. It is an opportunity, but it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity, opportunity that can do some good 
systems and models to that can be some, some bad as well. And what we have to do is believe this process. In a perfect world, opportunity zones should be going into impoverished areas and revitalizing them while not leaving anyone behind. But as you've seen some of the stories where you had certain areas designated as one of the census tracts that are country clubs, golf courses, where the richest of the rich get to transfer their profits and, and build country clubs tax-free. That just goes to show how the system is broken, and that's how we have to keep an eye on it. You know, we have two census tracts in Miramar, and we are very intentional and deliberate in terms of how those areas will be able to uh, take advantage of the opportunity zones, where uh, if there is going to be a multi-use facility that has a residential component, we want, first of all, we want to make sure when it gets built, the people from our community is going to be a part of that project. Second, the residential units that are built, we're going to have a certain number of units that are affordable, low-income, and workforce, so that no one is left behind. But now here's where I keep it real. We talk a lot about gentrification, but it just goes to show, especially people of color, we have to understand and value power and the necessity of owning property. You know, our grandparents and our parents own property, but when they die and pass on, we fight over the land, we just want to sell it and get the cash. Right, right. And I said, it's really hard to gentrify our neighborhood if we own the land. And if we own the land, how can they gentrify our neighborhood if we don't sell it? Right. So we have to empower people of color to educate them on the power of land ownership. And the value of ownership. Yeah. And to protect it. Because when we do that, then we have more of a say of our neighborhood. It's only when we are renters. When we say my old neighborhood... Well, if you were a renter in that own neighborhood, for whatever reason, I know there's some circumstances on why people can't own property, okay? But when we own the, when we own the real estate, when we own the brick and mortar, it's very difficult for outsiders and investors to come in and take what we claim to be our neighborhood. So it's important that we invest in the education of people of color in owning property so that we can have more of a say Any other questions? Um, Andy, let me go with that too, because when uh, you and I were talking earlier, as I said in my opening, as I one of my first questions to you was that you put your businesses in areas or communities of color, uh, and your latest um, Bus Boys and Boys over in Southeast, Martin Luther King, one um, the, the, the largest and full service restaurant over there as, as gentrification moves over there. Uh, and it's been years or anything like that since they've had anything like that. But you've invested in those communities and been a part of that development. Talk to us about that and what it means and what are the structures of that for many people of color and how they can use that as a value statement to do exactly what the mayor is talking about, create ownership in those opportunity zones, in those areas. Uh, talk to us about that as well. So when we were getting ready to go in there, I wanted to make sure that we're going to be in a space that really um, is going to be a benefit to the community. So the building we're in is owned by a very strong local nonprofit called the Far Southeast Family Strengthening Collaborative. And they are the owners of the building, so they're my landlord. And they provide all kinds of services to the community. So for me to pay them every single month, 
right. in my rent goes directly back, back to, to the community service the community on many issues, whether it deals with the elderly, access to programs, preschool programs, and so on. So that's been a great uh, um, collaboration there. Um, the, the idea that that a lot of the city is changing very rapidly, and I think sometimes they, I agree with the mayor. I think there's there's so many opportunities the cities don't take advantage of. Um, for example, like land trusts. Uh, for example, like uh, inclusionary zoning for businesses as well as for uh, residents. Um, the change is happening so rapidly that a lot of these programs have been around for a while aren't really functioning the way you're supposed to. The point is like and only the know who know can actually use it and get into it or even propose it. That, that, that's one. Yeah. The, the, the other part, a little too too little too late. Uh, you're talking about inclusionary zoning. You're talking about a handful of, of you know, apartment units right. or, or condos or whatever. What the need is in the thousands. Right. Uh, so uh, we have failed on public housing. We have failed on so many levels uh, to really create a city that functions for everybody. And sometimes I think the the horse is out of the bar, so to speak. So if you were to just sit back and do nothing. Is going to roll the way it's supposed to roll. You have to actually put, be proactive, proactive right. and intentional right. about where you want the city to be. But most people don't want to rock that. It's too sweet, you know. Like people see the city as a business, uh, and uh, cities should not be uh, developed as you would a business. It's not maximizing profit. Right. It's maximizing benefits, mm -hmm. and you have to look in terms of who's benefiting. Is the city functional not for the you know the top uh, half or the top quarter whatever it is uh, as well as it is for the other folks because how far can you keep pushing you keep pushing you keep pushing pretty soon that will come back it's going to come back go ahead that's Mr. Right. education is so important especially for the community because I tell you this when developers come to municipalities to do major development. And they don't necessarily have an entitlement in terms of zoning right. or particular development. Mm -hmm. Not only do they petition the local municipality for the zoning change, but oh, by the way, since we're going to be investing $100 million on this block, um, our impact fees for infrastructure or for parks is going to equal to about $4.5 million. We only want to be able to that. Guess who's three quarters? That belongs to the people, the taxpayers. So it's not like they're coming into and making the development. They're doing the benefit. There's some benefit to development. The nights are maybe creating some economic activity. True enough, but they're asking. They need the city to give them some permission, and they're getting dollars to do it. Are they getting waiver of fees to do it? Right. So that means now the public has to say. So if the public is going to allow you and going to waive some of these fees, then what is going to be your public benefit and consideration for us doing that? Mm -hmm. So for you to come in and just build luxury apartments, high-rent commercial space, high-rent office space that the local hardworking individual can't also participate in as well, or, for example, the waiter or the waitress, or the administrative assistant that's going to work in that building can't even 
afford to live there, at least a certain small percentage of the unit, that's not asking too much. And we have to ensure that we are electing both elected officials that understand that. And we'll hold these people to the fire and ensure that if we're going to give you something as a city, what are you going to give back to the city that's going to benefit our community? And you're transitioning right to where I want to go uh, very quickly as, as we get ready to, to wind down. Uh, later on this evening, you'll be with um, Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign and talking about um, the issues of, of poverty and and the same thing that, that Andy was talking about in terms of the, the levels and where we're heading. So talk about your vision, your planning, your policy to address poverty in this country as the next president. What, what will you do or how will you do that? Your, your 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 policies for that in, in terms of uh, uh, I mean and the poor people's campaign tonight. What, what are yeah, we all back to our priorities in this country? It all goes back to our priorities in this country. We already know how to deal with poverty in this country. It's either giving access to health care, good paying jobs, education, reforming our criminal justice system. But you know what? To deal with each one of those areas, it costs dollars. Right. It costs money. But what does Washington always say? We don't have it. Mm-hmm. We're the wealthiest country in this world, and we don't have the money because we don't have the priorities. Almost 60% of our federal budget goes to what? Defense. Right. Defense. And look at some of these contracts. They're so bloated. I mean, when they say $500 for, for a nut to go on a boat, right. they're not lying. Does a boat really cost $500? Right. You know? So the question becomes, where are our priorities? So we have to start there. We have to start reportioning our budget to start addressing some of these issues. We have about 15, 16 states, including our own, that have not expanded Medicaid. That's because we have a Republican governor that says that I want no part of Obamacare, I don't want it, I don't want it on my record, and what's the balance of that? Poor people not getting access to health care. It's just a matter of just finding Yes. 
So um, the telecom industry is very complicated, and depending on where you are and what state you're in, um, have different laws. Like for example, in the state of Florida, the telecom industry basically went to South Hatton and basically preempted every municipality from having, well, forcing us in our way to approve the expansion of 5G. Um, just briefly in terms of the history, like for 4G and legacy um, frequency um, infrastructure, they are they were supported by these tall telephone towers. You see the different carriers have their their equipment on there. They're spaced about four or five miles apart. Well, 5G is a high frequency. Now we require different facilities much closer, maybe a thousand feet apart, but they're much smaller and they'll be placed throughout. But in the state of Florida, um, they got Tallahassee to say that. Cities have X number of days to approve in bulk these applications. So when it was just one tall tower, you might have four in your five in your city. Now you may have thousands or hundreds of these 5G points of presence because they have to be closer. Now, so because of that, there has been no incentive to incentivize these private telecommunication companies like Verizon, Sprint, AT&T, T-Mobile. They're paying their own private dollars to expand this infrastructure. So as they're expanding, they're using their contractors, their subcontractors to put this, this infrastructure in place. And there's no way to, to make them hire local contractors because it's their dollars. I would propose just in general. Not, well, in Florida, what they did was to, uh, they still have to pay a fee to apply for their uh, approval, for their permit to place the we're just restricted on what we can charge them and how fast we have to approve their applications. So basically, once they can drop 500 applications, or, well, they can drop an application 500 points present throughout our city, we have to approve it in so many days. If we don't approve it, it's automatically approved. It doesn't matter how they look, the color they are, what neighborhood it is, they can put it in front of your house. So we have to do all of that. So, so yeah, so, so the point I'm getting to is that a solution, because every state is different and different here in D.C. and the D.C. area in terms of how the, uh, Maryland and Virginia and how D.C. handles that infrastructure, that infrastructure is, instead of just giving tax cuts to multinational corporations, huge corporations who just take that money and those savings and buy back their stocks to, you know, to, to shelter their money or perhaps put it offshore, some of them in offshore account is if we incentivize multinational large corporations, listen, we'll give you a tax cut, but we want you to invest in infrastructure in rural communities and underserved communities where you may not necessarily be investing the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars in infrastructure because you want to see where you can get a return on investment. Well, if you connect our rural communities like Madison, Florida, South Bay, Florida, and some of the rural areas in Virginia and Maryland, get infrastructure out there. You prove you put it out there. You have an asset. We'll give you a tax break. But guess what the benefit is now to, the, to those communities? Now, people in these underserved communities are connected to the internet. They have access to 5G. Now they have their minds, their intellect, to start their businesses from their home when otherwise they had to go to a but for the poet to get in there, or to a library, or to school, or maybe some inconvenient place. So now, because they are now building our infrastructure, they're getting a tax cut, but now the people 
have tangible benefit by them getting a tax cut because now they built our infrastructure, which they were building making money because data still has to transfer through their instead of fiber. And then now where there's fiber and connectivity, then now development takes place. Right. Because now I may put a bus boy employed in this area where I may not have even considered because now there's 5G access there, there's a budding entrepreneurial class that's developing there. So now we're structuring development. So it's being creative where you work within the confines of what makes businesses successful, speaking their language, but then turning it around and adding a public benefit to it. So these are just to me our common sense approaches. Uh, Andy, I want to uh, um, get to you and, and we're going to wrap up group real quick here because we were talking about uh, uh, the mayor is going to be talking tonight at the Four Peoples campaign. I know we talked earlier about some work that you're doing in that same uh, venue and the same aspect uh, dealing with the Four Peoples campaign. Talk to us about that and what's your involvement and how you're uh, promoting um, the aspect of policy changes for people in poverty and trying to raise the, the, the living standards. We had, uh, we had folks on my radio show this morning uh, speaking about that very issue. And uh, I believe uh, the, uh, there's going to be a program that's going to be, I, I think, uh, on MSNBC, live on MSNBC, with some of the candidates, the major candidates. Uh, we're talking about uh, Biden, Warren, and others who are going to be on that, on that conversation. This is one of the first times that uh, this issue has been coming up in a mainstream uh, political uh, sphere. Right. And that's, that's really encouraging to see. People are talking about issues of, of poverty and talking about the wealth disparity and talking about these various, you know, 43% of people living in this country live Near one paycheck away. Yeah. One paycheck away from exactly. completely being out on the, on the, uh, on the street. Right. And that's Quite alarming when we think of ourselves as the wealthiest country in the world, the most prosperous and on, on many levels. We have to really start to rethink about what makes us uh, what makes us believe that. You know, there's been this this myth that's been promoted that we are number one in everything. Right. But you know, we really have a lot of work to do. And, and I'm and I'm really glad that the Reverend Barber and others have been at the forefront of this issue. This issue is not new. It's been talked about a lot. And I think finally, with this crop of uh, political candidates that are, that are running, including the mayor here, um, I think there's an opportunity to have this dialogue in a very serious way. And election year is always an opportunity to uh, air out some of these things that we tend to ignore uh, for, for other times. So I'm, I'm really glad that they're taking on this really important issue. And, and it's not just that, they're, you know, they're also taking on reparations. Right. Uh, those are those are serious conversations that we have managed to sweep under the carpet for way too long. And you know, when you keep sweeping stuff under the carpet, you start tripping. Right. And I think that's what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> and that's what the mayor was talking about earlier when uh, you were talking about reparations earlier, um, and talking about what we're going to do. So let me ask you this: What can we do, or what are you going to do? What's your plan to uh, mayor to one? make the next round of, of the debate stage, because I know that they're, uh, 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 the first round, you weren't able to get there, but you're gonna, you know, you're pressing forward, and what's your plan for the next stage? And also, uh, touch on reparations. Yeah. Well, for those of the audience would like to um, help reach the uh, donor goal that the DNC has put out, you can uh, visit my website at 
for USA.com. That's Wayne, F-O-R, USA.com. If you want to make $55,000, you can sell your son to help you make the July debate in Detroit. Um, but in terms of the question, I alluded to this in terms of reparations. Well, let's say, say reparations specifically, but the impact of enslavement of um, the fact right. that was brought to this country, helped build this country. Is, um, right now, I think to to get to the, the resolution to repair those impacts, I support HR 40 um, by our Congresswoman uh, Sheila Jackson Lee out of Houston, um, that basically will set up a commission to scientifically and objectively study the impact of free labor of um, slave Africans that were brought to this country. Once we get that data, then now we have objective data that we can use to say that, well, what were the impacts on the income that was not realize for those individuals and their descendants. What has been the ramifications of the access or lack of access to health care? What has been the impact of Jim Olaf mm-hmm. and redlining where you know white communities were able to get loans and to buy property when we couldn't. You know, whatever happened to that forty eight percent of you and what that right. has done you right. know, for um, the black community. So now we have this objective data and now we can quantify what those impacts are. And then now Congress can now come up to determine how to appropriately adopt the recommendations that will come from that study. Because then now you can't refute the data, you can't refute what happened, you can't refute the impact of what we're seeing today. Because until we define what the impacts are, then it will be very difficult for us to actually come to some solution and resolution. Right. And I'll also call the task for those individuals and those candidates that kind of sugarcoat the issue and try to give uniform solutions that will help everybody. everybody. But you know what? Everybody wasn't enslaved. Exactly. All right. Everybody did not uh, have to endure the injustices that Black people had to endure. Um, so, yeah, and reparations is the root word is repair. So we have to repair that. So if, if everyone was not impacted the way that African Americans were, you know, in this country. So um, I'll call the path to anyone that will just give glossy responses as it relates to reparations. Yes, there are some uniform solutions that we can uh, provide um, to not only black people and people of color and poor people in this country, but there's a whole lot more white poor people than there are black people, mm-hmm. all right, that can benefit all of all of these impacted individuals. But there are some specific remedies that must and should take place to address the impact of the free labor that was benefited from by this nation, by those who were enslaved uh, from Africa. And uh, it's important to know that H.R. 40 was introduced by John Conyers in, uh, yeah. in, in 1989. It was. Yeah. And it's been going on for a long time. This is the first time that actually it has gotten over 50 co-sponsors in the House, and now for the first time the Senate's taken it on, and I think they have, I want to say about 10 co-sponsors there. Cory Booker is taking the lead of that, so uh, I think it's starting to get a little bit of traction here. So as we close out, let me ask you, Andy, as I do with uh, all my guests, um, I ask them, what's at stake? What's at stake for us? And I, I always pose this specifically. Uh, towards African Americans, but just really in general because of what we have been going through and, and what we have endured for the last three and a half years or, or three years, what's at stake for us? I, I think the heart and soul of this country, honestly. I, I really do believe that we have someone now in the White House 
who lacks uh, any kind of ethical or moral compass. And I think it, it's alarming because when you have the head of the organization being um, so, um, so unethical and so immoral in many ways, Criminal and and has absolutely has no qualms has yeah. no qualms in in, uh, yeah. in saying the most ridiculous things that have such huge impact. You no longer ridiculous things by yeah. You no longer a showman on 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 the Real Housewives. Right. I mean, you're you're like right. you have an impact. You know, exactly. your words matter. Exactly. And uh, and when you don't recognize the seat that you're in and how impactful that seat is, um, it's really quite disturbing, frankly, to watch it. I, I come from a country, as you mentioned, Iraq, where uh, we had a fascist regime. And uh, fascism doesn't just you know, show up in, in the most obvious way. Sometimes right. it shows up in, uh, in, in, uh, with, uh, with, with orange hair and suits. So you have to be, you have to really have to be and, careful. And it evolves, you know, pretty it evolves. quickly, but it, but it comes real Absolutely. tight. And, and it, you know, Absolutely. People keep... They keep ignoring it. They, they keep, keep ignoring, ignoring it. it they keep and ignoring then they it. know it's there. Yep. Yeah. You don't wake up one day and say, oops, oops. there's fascism. You know, right. It doesn't just show up at your door knocking. It comes very, very slowly, like in, in the air that we breathe and the way we function. And I'm just worried. I think we really are at a, at a, prep, at a, at a precipice where we yeah. see the very essence of what this country was built on. Right. And it's creating fissures. And we start to understand that we are... Uh, we, we have issues. We yeah. have we have issues that we have to address that have just shown us the fragility of our democracy, the fragility of our constitution, mm. the fragility of our institutions. Mm. Yes. Uh, that we, for the longest time, thought, oh, we are. <laughs> no one is going to touch Roe v. Wade. No one is right. going to do that because right. it's already done. It's already passed. No, but no one's going to, you know, allow people to come and live and pay and pay them to, yeah. you know, do this or do that. Yeah, you know. no one is going to let like some foreign country right. interfere in, in our, our elections election. and say, oh, that's sure. okay. Yeah, sure. You know, no one is going to do that. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, that's an SNL stuff. You know, <laughs> but we're talking about like real stuff happening. Right. So that's my and and that's and yeah, I mean, you hit it right on the head for me because. It, it just, in the pit of my stomach, uh, Mayor, it, it's like Congress and especially the Senate is like, don't care, don't worry about it, it's nothing. But to the word, to the period, to the dollar, to the cent, if you had just changed and had this as Barack Obama, we know for a fact that none of this would have been accepted. They wouldn't be turning blind eyes. They would be calling out. They would have press conference. They would be putting in legislation. We would probably already be in an impeachment investigation by now. And it's so sickening to me that Democrats haven't moved <laughs> methodically, but even with just the understanding of educating the public on what impeachment means so they can actually understand it, like uh, the Republican congressman did, and being able to just get to the core to make people testify and do it. And with that, what's at stake? Everything is at stake. You know, the very fabric of our nation, um, the integrity of our institutions. Uh, you know, we have three branches of government, co You know, and uh, we, we, we have to preserve and protect 
you know, the integrity of our institution, and that has been. It's being challenged at this point. And America must rise up uh, beyond the fact that no one is above the law. You know, at the end of the day, uh, I know it's very convenient to, to talk about impeachment and to push for impeachment because those of the we see that as a way uh, to get rid of this president, although this Republican-led um, Senate was not followed through even in the top right, of course, go forward. So my position in terms of impeachment basically is that I just challenge Congress to do their constitutional duty of oversight. Exactly. I mean, even as a minimum to begin to anchor. But at the end of the day, I want to focus on the issues that are important to the American because whether Trump is impeached or not, if there are an inquiry started or not, there's still a grandmother there that can't afford her prescription medicine. There's still you know, people of color in prison that are serving sentences longer than their white counterparts. There's still schools and neighborhoods uh, that are not at par with their peers across the railroad track. There's still families and hardworking people that have to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet. I think that's what American people are really focused on and are looking for solutions. Someone who will speak truth to power, someone who will call out injustices, uh, not in a safe way, but in a very real way, and then someone who will bring this country back together, someone who will think and dream big. You know, everyone is talking about getting back to some form of normalcy pre-Trump. The last I checked, pre-Trump wasn't working for most Americans. We need to be thinking much bigger, much broader to work on behalf of the American people. So as we close out tonight, I want to thank my, uh, my guest tonight, uh, this afternoon, uh, and host today for uh, at Busboys and Poets, Andy Shalom in the honor of Busboys and Poets uh, across the DMV. Certainly, if you're in the area, come by and check it out on 14th and U. And, uh, um, where else we got? We got uh, yeah, Brooklyn, we have uh, uh, Shaw, uh, Chinatown, we have um, Tacoma Park, Tacoma we have Park, Hyattsville, right. we've got Sherlington, we've got Anacostia. We've yeah, we got seven locations. All over, all we got the place covered here. Yeah, we, we got them covered. So wherever you live, you can always come on out and, and join and uh, have lunch, dinner, breakfast, the bus boys and boys, and then come on out for their events that they do uh, regularly throughout the week. And then also, I want to thank my guest, uh, 2020 President's candidate uh, from Miramar, Florida, Mayor Wayne Messiam. And Mayor, I, I didn't ask the question, but real quick, very, very quickly, Talk to the people about the gun control that you do in your city and how you raise wages for the people. Because I think as a chief executive and letting people know that you have raised wages for your city workers and employees is very important and want them to understand that. Uh, give me 30 seconds real quick. Well, in the city of Miramar, we pass the wage. All the ones that for the city can't impose a minimum wage or a living wage on our city. However, we took the steps to do it for our workers. So we are leading by and also, I'm suing the state of Florida right now as it relates to gun control because I can't pass a law in the city too far to solve salvation in our parks. In fact, the state government will actually remove me from office, personally fine me $5,000 if I can't pass such a law in my city. So I'm suing the state of Florida to remove those punitive provisions so that local government can have more of a say in gun control in our cities. Again, I want to thank my guests this afternoon, uh, Mayor uh, Wayne Messiam from Miramar, Florida, and uh, Busboy's employed owner and entrepreneur, philanthropist, and uh, extraordinaire, uh, Andy Shalom. I want to thank them for uh, hosting us tonight. 
or this afternoon, I keep saying tonight because we normally broadcast at night, but we're doing a special broadcast this afternoon in Bunch of Boys and Toys Live. And I want to just thank them for hosting us tonight, and certainly we'll look forward to doing this again. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, how can we follow you, get in touch with you, and, and make sure that we can get you on that debate, debate, debate stage the next uh, next time in July? I'm on social media platforms, Instagram, Wayne Messer, and Twitter at Wayne Messer, that's W-A-Y-N-E-M-E-S-S-A-M, and you can visit my website at Wayne, for USA.com, Wayne, F-O-R-U-S-A.com, or you can text. 20, you can look Wayne 20 to the number 24365, or 24 days, 25 years. Wayne, the number 2205, 24365. Thank you so much for having me. Perfect. Until next time, if it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Policy Today. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today.